read from Psalm 16, and I will be turning back to that. We'll look at uh, a couple of verses later on. But the text I have for our thinking this evening is actually from the book of Proverbs, chapter 16 and verse 33. And I'll read that to you. The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing of is of the Lord. And really, I suppose the subject is that of providence, of God's overruling, of how he uh, ensures that the outcomes of life and our choices and events are entirely according to his will. But there is, you can see immediately, a dual aspect to this verse. There's our responsibility. There are our actions. We are the ones, if you like, who cast the lot into the lap. We take certain measures in life. We make certain choices. And then those outcomes, the end result, is in the hands of our God. And uh, there's teaching there for us. How do we work with providence? It does seem a kind of mysterious uh, thinking and teaching, the providence of God, the unseen workings of the Almighty God behind the scenes, bringing all things together for his eternal good. And it might seem to us, well, that's something that we don't really have any involvement with. We play our part, and uh, there's not much else we need to do. But we can have a better view than that, because the providence of God is also the opportunity for us. And as we sow or cast the lot, we expect to see his wondrous blessings. It's not forgotten. As we pray, for example, we don't know exactly the outcome, but we are confident that it will be an outcome that will be the wisest and the best. So all of these things are really encompassed in this verse, that the lot is cast into the lap but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. And we might consider some misconceptions just briefly about these things. Casting of lots. Well, let's think about that first of all, just briefly. Solomon uses a figure which would have been well known. The history of Israel from earliest times, there was the casting of lots, a means used to determine the Lord's will in matters. And uh, so uh, he can apply this uh, as an analogy, as a teaching for us. Its first use, we're not going to do a complete survey, but the first use that I see of the casting of lots is back there in Leviticus chapter 16, and it is concerning the scapegoats. And that's very interesting, that the first time that lots were to be cast was to determine which of the two goats, kids, they would be to going to be selected. I'll just read it for you. You needn't turn to it, but it's in Leviticus 16 and verse 8. Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. And so we can see here that the selection of the goat that was to be shed its blood was according to God's will. 
according to God's purpose. And we could, we know very well that in time, in the fullness of time, the fulfillment of this picture was to be the Lord Jesus Christ. And you could say, upon whom the lot was cast. He was to be the Messiah. He was the chosen one. He was that person of the Godhead who was to come in the flesh. And this is the overruling and provision of God. And in this matter, man has no part. In this matter, although we are the beneficiaries, the uh, exercise, the selection of the scapegoats was a teaching aid only. And uh, it's instructive for us that in this we see the sovereign overruling of God and that the one who was for the Lord would shed blood. And the other, in a sense, also was symbolic, but his blood was not shed. It was the scapegoat that went into the wilderness and symbolically carried away the sins. It was a picture only. Of course, the shedding of the blood atoned for no sin. And of course, the symbolic carrying away of sins into the wilderness, to be seen no more, by the way, that goat was never to be recovered. They were to put it in such a wilderness that it could not return, never find its way back, and its fate we would know nothing about. But it's pictures for us, pictures of salvation, pictures of atonement. But I thought we should just touch on that. It's not our study this evening, but as we're just talking about lots, then its first usage is a very symbolic one for us. I'm going to look at some others. I'm not going to turn to them because there isn't really time. And I'll just mention briefly this, and I'll come back to it. After Joshua's conquest, you will know, of course, after the 40-odd years in the wilderness, when the conquest began under Joshua, when they were led into the promised land across the Jordan, and they were commissioned to expel the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites. And you'll know the history very well. You can read it there. Uh, and they weren't entirely successful, of course, in that. But by and large, they occupied the land. And uh, under the judgment of God, the Canaanites were removed. But at that point, as they labored together, as they fought together, as they acted in faith, they had no idea what would be their particular portion. They simply trusted the Lord. This was their land that was promised to them. But as they fought alongside one another, they didn't think particularly, well, I must find more in this region because this is my apportioned place. And when we go to that region, well, that's another tribe. I'm not going to bother so much. And that's instructive because we all work together. We all labor together for the Lord. And only afterwards were the lots to be cast. And uh, there's a great teaching there also. Because the context of the casting of these lots was in battle. Was in faith. And it pictures the church. It pictures us. But that church, our church, this church, the church of Jesus Christ through all ages is pictured in Joshua's campaign. We're not to be those who just sit back, who just wait for others to go into the thick of the, of the battle, to risk their lives, to exercise faith, and then to reap the spoils afterwards. No, we are to be those who are laboring, 
those who are contending, those who are fighting. And only afterwards is the reward. Only later on. You see, it's always in the context of service to God. So that was, in a sense, as they cast their lots later on, then they trusted that God would apportion to them their lands. And then there's another example that I would like to turn to. And uh, this is just a, a case of casting of lots also. And it's found in the New Testament. And it's in the book of Acts. And uh, in chapter 1 and verse 26, 23, I beg your pardon. And uh, it's for the selection of the replacement of the, the, the apostle after Judas uh, betrayed the Lord Jesus. And so there was the casting of the lots there. So Acts chapter 1 and uh, verse 23. And they appointed two, Joseph called Barsabas, who was surnamed Justus, and Matthias. These were the candidates to replace Judas. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, knowest the hearts of men. Show whether of these two thou hast chosen, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias. He was numbered with the eleven apostles. So that's instructive also. Because the casting of lots was not just a matter of chance. And there was preparation. There was conscious looking to the Lord. So in a sense, as we cast our lots in life, it's not simply a matter of fate or luck or chance. They looked to the Lord. The Lord was deeply involved in this. And look at the preparation they prayed, and they said, Lord, thou knowest the hearts of men. Show which of these thou hast chosen for a purpose, that he may take part in the ministry and the apostleship. There must have been some considerable discussion. You can imagine, can't you? Who shall we select? It's not just a case of this is the lowest possible way you could look at it. Well, we've lost one of our number. We need to replace him. Well, who, let's just find a couple of names. Nothing of the sort. And so it ought to be in all of our seeking for guidance in the Lord's work. We're not to do it lightly. We're to do it prayerfully and for a positive purpose in this case so that he could indeed make up the number that he might uh, serve and minister alongside the apostles. And so that's another example for us just briefly. Then we have also a negative case of casting of lots. And you can probably uh, see where I'm going here. I'm not going to read it, but it's in Matthew 27 and verse 35, where the soldiers cast lots for the Lord's robes. Now that's the casting of lots in an unbelieving sense. That was luck. That was chance. There was no representation these were not spiritual people. These were actually seeking for their own gain, earthly gain. And so they trusted in the method of luck and chance. And uh, you might say, well, that's a fair enough way to go about it. That may be the case. But it's nothing to do with the Lord. 
And so we're not to uh, make those mistakes. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why we don't have the practice anymore. It can become a superstitious matter when it's not carefully managed and operated. Uh, so we're to avoid that also. There's a sense in which perhaps people do look for signs and strange happenings and believe that these are the way that the Lord answers prayers. Curious experiences that we uh, assume must be the answer of God in certain circumstances. Mind you, we have to qualify that because it, the Lord does answer our prayers often in unusual and unexpected ways, ways that we might not expect, but we're not to have that kind of superstitious hope. There are some who say, well, I've prayed for this thing, so the Lord must give it to me. It's uh, my right. I've claimed the promise in the scripture, and uh, I, I demand to have that answer to prayer. Well, that's not the spirit in which we cast our lots. We cast them humbly, prayerfully. So we need to have some applications made to us. I'm sorry that was a very brief survey of just some examples. There are many more uh, in the scripture. But as we've used, uh, as we have this text here where the casting of lots is referred to, then it's useful just to think about those things. So there it is. We cast our lots. And uh, we look at the applications to us. This is actually a very encouraging principle and teaching. We can't see beyond uh, our circumstances. We can't see over the horizon of our, the events of our lives. We can't know the outcome of our choices. So in one sense, we cast our lot. We act in faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. But it's comforting to know that the disposing of it is entirely in our most wise and loving Heavenly Father's hands and will. So there it is. The outcomes are of the Lord. The whole disposing of the unseen workings, the complexities and the hidden forces at work behind the scenes are orchestrated by our Heavenly Father. And I've said before, it's not fate. It's not chance. That's how we used to think. That's how people uh, in the world think. Oh, what good fortune I've had. What a happy outcome. What a coincidence. And uh, that's a kind of trusting in fate. But we trust in our most heavenly Father who is involved, who knows and numbers the very hairs on our heads. And he knows what is the best outcome. So what a promise. This is a great promise of assurance that the disposing of it all is entirely in his hands. So uh, let's learn some principles from these things. There is a balance of responsibility. I've mentioned it already. There's our part to play. And it must be an active one. It's not an inactive one. We mustn't be fatalistic. Oh, well, whatever will happen will happen. I'll just accept it stoically. That's not real faith. Real faith says, I've cast my lot, and I'm confident that the outcome is in God's hands, and who better? I couldn't determine those matters. I don't have the wisdom. I have so little influence in life, but it's, I've left it with my Heavenly Father. So the teaching is very comforting to us. 
We pray and trust and accept his will. It's expressed really in different ways in the scripture. So, for example, that well-known scripture, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 6.33, and all these things shall be added unto you, is a principle of our casting of lots. We do our part. We don't know the outcome, but we observe the priority, and we trust the Lord. As those lots were cast, whether they be for that scapegoat, whether they be the allocation of lands, what they were sure of was that the Lord would determine the outcome. But they had to play their part. They had to trust in him. So this text, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, is often used to preach and proclaim the gospel. And that's absolutely right. But it's a principle, lifelong. We don't leave it once we're born again, once we're babes in Christ. It's not just the elementary stage of the Christian life. It ought to be a principle lifelong. Do we always seek for the kingdom of God first of all and trust in the Lord God to provide all our other needs? Really, it's the wisest choice anyway. Because if we uh, sought to uh, uh, enrich ourselves, as we, if we seek to have a better life, and we discard this principle, or we give little weight to it, we pray a little bit, we might give lip service to this principle, oh yes, I do seek the Lord first. But in reality, we're really feathering our nests or pursuing other aims and objectives, and our faith and our religion is not deep, we'll end up the poorer in the end. Those things we've gone after will disappoint us. We'll burn our fingers. We'll be as thorns to us. If we're believers, we'll never lose our salvation. But the Lord would have given us so much more. He would have given us much greater blessings. He might not have given us earthly riches, but he'll give us a sense of his presence, answer to prayer, privileges, a closer walk with him, nearer to heaven, We'll leave this world behind more, how it troubles us anyway. So leave that to him. We have our work cut out more than leave those matters to him. But our tendency is, it's natural, we still have that fallen nature, that we want to take care of those other things. We also want to be involved in those things. So let's be careful that we don't do that. And it was the same also with Joshua, I've mentioned already the context before they even cast the lots. You can read through the book. There are many instances of the casting of lots in the book of Joshua, mainly and principally for the allocation of the land areas to be occupied by the tribes of Israel. But as I've said to you already, the context was of, uh, of battle, of his campaign, of his conquest. And all of those matters were left to the Lord also. But, you know, that's also very comforting. Because if you think about it, after the battles were subsided and peace to a degree was obtained, mind you, if you read through the book of Judges, it soon returned to great difficulties. There were still enemies that troubled them for a long time because they didn't obey the Lord. 
But at this point in time, there was relative peace, and the tribes uh, were to be allocated their lands, and they waited upon the Lord. And how helpful that is, because it was left to them. Can you imagine what would have happened? Now I want that land. Now I want this area. Now we have claim to it. Now we shed more blood there. Can you imagine it? But because it was done by Lot, it was the Lord said. If you didn't like your allocation, who would you, who would you bring your case to? Not Joshua, not the elders, but God. That's helpful for us. Because we've been allocated lots in life. We've been given situations. And they're in the context of the spiritual warfare. And we are to accept them and to be thankful for them. Those tribes at last, the long-waited-for promises had come into fulfillment. They were a reality now. They were in the land. How long this land had been promised to them. They'd fought for it. And now was the time to leave behind battle and to settle down. They could never relax. There would always be risks and intrusions and attacks but by and large, they could begin to, to reap the crops, to sow the land, to raise families, and uh, to enjoy the fruits of the conquest. And that's what we should be doing, rather than complaining, rather than saying, oh, my lot in life. It's a term used, isn't it, commonly, even now. Oh, well, that's his lot in life. It's still in our language. But we should be thankful that God has appointed us our lot. The place where we are, the situation we're in, the person we've married, the job we have, the children that God has given to us. Now that's not to say that it's all plain sailing. In those allocated areas, there was a lot of work to do. The land was to be cleared. The Canaanites were still to trouble them for years to come. It wasn't going to be easy. But they had to be thankful and to be grateful and to use the opportunities. How destructive is it if we become unsettled, discontented? Doesn't that sap our joy? Isn't it a very common uh, aspect of our hearts that we become dissatisfied, that we want something else, that we look perhaps... As uh, I said, if one of the tribes looked on at another tribe and they said, well, Reuben's lot is better than mine, or Manasseh's, they've got so much land, or Ephraim's, or Dan's, it's not fair. No, God gave that to you. God gave those lands to them. Thank you, Lord. Not, it's not what I would have chosen, but the disposing of it is in your hands. And in that I'm confident and I will therefore get on with what you've given me to do. The place where you have put me. The family. The church. And I will be grateful. And I'll be busy. So that's helpful, isn't it? In the casting of the lots here. So accepting his providence and overruling is so essential to contentedness. As Paul said to Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. We can think too of the 
patriarchs. We can think of Abraham, uh, first of all. He obeyed the call. In a sense, it was the casting of the lot. He heard the voice, and he was asked, in a way, to cast his lot, if you like, casting the lot of faith. He didn't know the outcome. He didn't know where it would lead. He didn't know at that point that he would be the father to the faithful, that his descendants would be as the sand of the seashore and as the stars in the night sky, innumerable, not his literal descendants, but his descendants through the seed, Christ, the seed of Abraham, is how the Apostle Paul speaks of it. And so his spiritual descendants were to be believers. But he didn't know that. He left behind what would have been a very prosperous life in Ur of the Chaldees, very sophisticated city. He could have done well there. He could have gone into business, had a large family, enjoyed the comforts of life. But instead, he cast his lot and wandered in the wilderness and dwelt in tents all the days of his life. And uh, yes, he did become a wealthy man. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things that you think you need and require will be added to you. And in his case, God did add much wealth to him. But Abraham remained in the wilderness. He remained a man of faith. And that's uh, a helpful picture for us. Moses also. Well, Moses, we might say, and there's some discussion there, acted earlier, perhaps uh, earlier than he ought to have done when he slew the Egyptian and imagined or hoped, and you could say this was an act of faith, hoped that the Israelites would see this great act as uh, to encourage them to also rise up against their oppression. Well, it wasn't the right time. And he had to expend the next 40 years as a humble shepherd until he was called. But then he cast his lot, and in time, and perhaps that's a lesson for us. When you cast that lot, you might think, well, I've served the Lord. I've done what I believe is right. I've prayed. I've obeyed him. And nothing's really happened. Nothing's really changed. And perhaps there's a sense we have that in our churches today. We pray that people would become concerned. We pray that believers would be more faithful. That they would see the restrictions and the oppression we pray for the world, and nothing seems to happen. But we go on faithfully. And in later years, when the opportunity came, who knows? Perhaps in your older years, rather as Moses. Wasn't Moses ready for retirement? And yet his greatest work was yet to begin. He cost his lot earlier, but he had to wait a long time for the outcome. And then... What a wondrous disposing of that lot it was. Not an easy one. Not uh, straightforward at all. How he was burdened, Moses, by the people, by their complaints, by their unbelief. But what wondrous privilege he had. The man of God, the friend of God, who loved the Lord, the man of faith. And we could cite so many other Examples, we could think of Joseph briefly. You could say that they cast an evil lot when they sold him into slavery. They wanted him out of the way. They resented him. They despised him because of his dreams. 
because he taught that the Lord had told him that he would be a leader one day, even of them, and that they would bow down to him, and they resented all of those things. They were unspiritual, and they had evil intentions. And I suppose, rather like the soldiers, this was a a superstitious casting of the lot. They cast him into a pit, but the whole disposing of it was according to the Lord's will. And what a disposing of it it was. And uh, Joseph himself says this later on, doesn't he? That it was meant for good. They meant it for evil, Genesis 50, 20. But they meant it unto good. Well, we could add to these examples. We could think of the Apostle Paul. He cast his lot in faith. He stood up for the Lord. He professed faith. He preached the gospel. And for that, was he rewarded? Yes, by going to prison. The Lord, that's how the Lord disposed of his faith. But what a wondrous disposing of it was. Four prison letters written. Spiritual insights, help. And so as we cast our lots, might we see these things. So, some final thoughts. Seek his will. Be active in seeking his will. Perhaps we're all guilty, I think I am, of not seeking the Lord's will, of going about our duty, of believing we're doing the right thing, but of actively seeking the Lord's will. Lord, what should I do in this situation? Guide me this week. Help me to listen to what your voice says. And that's not a literal, audible voice, but the voice of the scriptures and the voice of circumstances, the voice of providence. These are opportunities for you. Sow that seed. Cast your lot. Be diligent in prayer. You see, as I said at the beginning, although he disposes of it all, and although God is sovereign in every matter, that doesn't excuse us from our part, from our responsibility. If you think about it, the whole history of the Christian church has been through Men and women who are not sufficient for these things, who are yet sinners, and yet God has used them remarkably. There have been few direct interventions. Yes, some miracles recorded for their purposes, but by and large, the casting of the lot of faith and leaving the disposing of it to the Lord and what outcomes they are there what helps they are there. So think about providence. Think about why am I in this situation? What are the opportunities? What do they present to me? Think that God has put you there. Why? Maybe there's someone you need to speak to, someone you need to pray for. Maybe there's an opportunity for Christian service. Maybe there's something much to pray about. Why are you in this situation? Why has God placed you in a certain family, allowed certain things to happen to you? They're not an accident, but the disposing of it is in the Lord's hands. You could think of it as a feeble illustration, of, if you like, as like a ship blown along by the wind. And in the olden days, the winds were fickle. I'm sure they still are, but uh, we don't notice that so much. But if we're mariners, we have to watch the winds. 
Sometimes they blow serenely in our direction. Sometimes they're storms. But whatever that force of wind, the experienced mariner will utilize it to keep that ship on course, to have that vessel pointed to its port that all might arrive safely. And so providences sometimes are like that. Sometimes everything is calm and serene. Just keep pressing along. Sometimes there are storms of life. We'll use those. They're providences. Perhaps it's an energy that God will give you to impel you along. Yes, hazardous times, precarious times, dangerous times. Maybe your faith will fail. But also, much energy there. And you could say, I hope this is correct. It's the energy of providence. And use it. Direct your life to a good end. And sometimes, not to extend the illustration too much, we're becalmed at sea, and there's no wind, and nothing's happening, and the sails won't flap at all. Dead calm, a glassy sea. Times for patience. Times for waiting upon the Lord. That's the providence of God, you see. It won't always be like that. The winds will pick up again. There will be different seasons. So use these things. Don't fret. Spurgeon says, this is meddling with Christ's business, which is interesting. I know it's easy to say don't fret. We do so easily, don't we? Become anxious. But don't fret. Seek not to. The Lord knows. Christ knows. That's his business to resolve the outcome. And look for his providences. Just as we conclude, see them. What a rich teaching providence is. What a wonderful thing that God's influence is around us every day and all the time. And I think nine out of ten times we don't see it. We don't recognize it. We don't realize it. But let's actively think, ah, that happened for a reason. I might not know all of the depths of that reason, but I know this. Uh, my Heavenly Father allowed it, and he is disposing of it for his purposes Nothing is in vain. It's all for his glory. So look for providences and be thankful for them, even for the difficult ones. That's harder to do, isn't it? Well, I can see it's the providence of God, but I, it's most unwelcome. Yes, but it's for your eternal good. It's the disposing of it is with the Lord and not with us. See how he works for good in all things, in adversity and trials, as well as in peace. See, if you will, finally, the long game, the overruling, the overarching providence. Know that at the end of it, though you can't see over the hills, can't see beyond the horizon, don't know God's will. You know this, that he will bring you home. You know this, that you will rest one day. You know this, that you will look back, I believe we will, and see the hand of providence and see how it guided us, how the Lord guided us and how he disposed of all things most wondrously. Not our job. We have our part to play and we need to cast those lots and keep casting them in faith. Keep praying, keep serving and trust the outcome for him and for his eternal glory and our eternal joy.
Well, may that be a help to each one of us this evening. Let's uh, conclude our thinking uh, with our final hymn, number 81. Hymn concerning providence. Hymn number 81. Commit thou all thy griefs and ways into his hands. and my cup is with thee, thou maintainest my lot, 
that the lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places, yea, I have a goodly heritage. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ our Saviour, the love of God our Heavenly Father, and the fellowship and communion of the Holy Spirit rest and remain with each one of us, now and forevermore. Amen.